All right, so uh, it's another, um, oh, some of you have looked at the front and back and you're horrified. It looks like I'm doing an entire series today. Um, no worries. Um, yeah, so um, the uh, ushers should have, um, I did everything I could. I showed up early, I passed out things, and still there's a bunch of them that you don't have them. And even if, you, even if you're still protesting and don't like to fill in blanks, you, you still need this for the response today. So make sure right now that you um, snoop around. The other thing is there's pencils. Uh, some of the kids helped me this morning at the ends of many of the rows. So if you don't have a writing utensil, there's pencils down there. Now's the time to move around um, and get what you need. Turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 18. If you're not familiar with the scripture, go about a quarter of the way in and you'll come to the two Samuels, the two Kings, and the two Chronicles. And of those six, about a third of the way into the Bible, you'll find Second Chronicles. Um, and um, a couple things. Uh, if, you, if you picked up the card that's under your seat, by the way, that was a psychological test and you failed. Uh, I, I don't have time this morning to tell me for me to tell you all the things that that says about you, uh, but I'll, I'll let you worry about that uh, while, we, while, while I teach. Um, uh, so um, I was on a shift in the emergency department at the trauma center at the university, and the paramedics called in, uh, and they said um, they were coming in with a major trauma, uh, and um, the guy's name was uh, Rick. Rick was a 34-year-old who was... Uh, um, actually was often in the trauma center. They say they were, but they weren't. But he actually was minding his own business. Um, and he was um, watching TV with his two kids. And without any knowledge of his, there was a, a, an elderly woman who was driving down, had gotten lost, and was um, coming in, pulling into his driveway to turn around to go back the other way. And uh, as she uh, went to put her foot on the brake, it slipped off and it hit the accelerator. And she went through the garage door and through the family room wall and the wall and the car pinned on top of this 34-year-old guy, Rick. Uh, he was hurt badly. He came in. He had, a, a, he had brain injury. He had, both lungs were uh, collapsed, had a ruptured spleen, spleen a lacerated liver. Um, and so he was uh, unconscious um, and, and barely breathing. And uh, his, was, his blood pressure was dangerously low. So super quickly, by, by the way, people, it, it, emergency medicine is really interesting. People say, wow, it, it must be so complex. And the reality is, the sicker they get, the easier it gets. You just put tubes in all the holes they have, and you make more holes and put tubes in those. Uh, that's, it gets really simple when they get really sick. Uh, and so that's what we did. And then he did a quick, we did a quick uh, CT of his head and his chest and his abdomen. And then he went, to the, uh, he went to, for emergency neurosurgery and, and, and surgery in his abdomen and his chest to fix everything. And, and amazingly enough, uh, two weeks later, he was doing incredibly well and he was discharged to rehab. Had a little bit of neurodeficit at that point, but uh, in follow-up, he ended up doing really well. Um, but here's the moral of the story as we start talking about risk today. Um, don't sit in your family room watching TV with your kids. It's just too risky, okay? Everybody, one of the take-home messages from today. Um, so today, as we talk about risk, I wanna begin um, 
with Rick's story to explode a myth that we have a lot of control about what happens to us. It's a myth. Since the fall, this is a dangerous world. Life is dangerous. There are no guarantees. Um, my career has taught me over and over that you can't even assume that you will make it home safely today. Everybody got that? And the motorcyclists, about five times as likely. But all of us are at high risk. We can't assume that we're going to be breathing by the end of this service. Um, so uh, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, how no one can choose a low-risk life. Very interesting in a society addicted to safety. Um, no one can choose. You can, you can choose slightly more or less risk. You should wear your seatbelts and wear helmets, right? But nobody can choose a, a low-risk life because being human is risky business. Um, so we're going to look at the life uh, of one of the great Old Testament kings um, and uh, teach, uh, find what he teaches or what his life teaches us about taking risk in life and taking risk for God specifically. So here's the background. After Solomon, the 12 tribes, the kingdom of Israel, split into two kingdoms, the so-called divided kingdom. Ten tribes in the north called Israel still, uh, and two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, but Judah was ten times bigger than Benjamin, so Benjamin became an afterthought, and they just called it Judah, or the southern kingdom. Um, and um, so there were 19 kings in the north, all of them were evil. 20 kings in the south, eight of them were good, five of them were really good, like their father David, the scripture says, and they all led incredible revivals during their time. Um, and we're going to pick up, look at uh, the, the first verse of, of, uh, of Second Chronicles chapter 18, and we're picking up now at this point where the northern king is King Ahab, and out of the 19 evil kings in the north, King Ahab was the most evil of all of them. And Jehoshaphat was the second of the five great kings, his father Asa being the first, and he uh, was a great and godly king. Uh, and we, um, we pick up young, uh, as he's a young king, almost a brand new king, uh, and here's what happens. So Ahab from the north, bad guy, Jehoshaphat, incredible king from the south, and Jehoshaphat is gone north. Um, look at verse 1. Now Jehoshaphat had riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Note that. And some years later, he went down to visit Ahab in Samaria, and Ahab's, Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him and the people who were with him, and induced him to go up against Ramoth-Gilead. That's Ahab's enemy, Israel's enemy. And Ahab the king said to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go against, with, with me against Ramoth-Gilead? And he said, uh, here's Jehoshaphat's response. He's, he's now married to his daughter. What can he say? Um, I am as you are, and my people as your people, and I will be with you in battle. So as we go through this text, you, you will we'll get just a bit of the great Jehoshaphat story that most of you know from chapter 20. We're going to spend most of our time actually here in this much more uh, subtle and less known uh, part of the story, but we're going to look at risk. So here are the risk precepts. Number one, and here's your first blank for those who are taking notes. When you're young and inexperienced, <laughs> you assume that you know way more about the risks you're taking than you actually do. That's my practice. Um, you assume that you know way more about the risks that you're taking than you actually do. Um, look at what's going on as the story begins. Jehoshaphat marries Ahab's daughter, and, and notice it was entirely legal for him to do that, right, in God's law, 
because Ahab was Jewish and Jehoshaphat was Jewish. Um, so there was nothing wrong with marrying Ahab's daughter. It was just incredibly stupid to do it. More on that in a minute. So here's the setup for Jehoshaphat. I can understand him. Don't be too tough on him. When, see, Ahab was really cunning. And so he, uh, he put on a great show for Jehoshaphat, right? He, took, right? he took lamb and he took beef. He wined and dined Jehoshaphat and his entourage. And this was an attempt to make it look like Ahab was just being a great dad, celebrating his daughter and his son-in-law. Now, this marriage was um, really about one thing for Ahab. This was about putting Jehoshaphat in a position where he had to ally and help with Ahab's war against Ramoth-Gilead. So when Jehoshaphat agreed to become part of the Ahab family, he wasn't disobeying God. He was just being really foolish. He had no idea how risky this was. You're going to see uh, later in the text how it it almost becomes hysterical, how clueless he was. Uh, So here's the thing. When it comes to risk, we know a lot less than we think we know. We don't know what we're doing. There are so many risks out there that God has taken care of, and now we're ready for risk precept number two. Here it is. The best way to live in a high-risk world, which we live in by definition, is to have the right foundation. You see, despite his naivete, Jehoshaphat, what happens next, helps us see what made him great. Look with me at verse 4. Verse 4. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please... Inquire first of the Lord, word of the Lord. Notice, Ahab is godless. Jehoshaphat has already established that he is, and you can see earlier, that he is an amazing king and he wants to know God's way. So there it is. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord before I go. And then the king of Israel assembled the prophets. (laughs) I actually, you're not supposed to do this in your Bible, but I do, it helps me study. I, I put quotes on both sides of the prophets, right? These are the false prophets. 400 men, by the way, there was never, if there's never 400 people that are going to tell you or anybody the truth, right? Uh, This is what they do. And he said to them, uh, Ahab's asking, shall we go to Ramath Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And they said, go up for God will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of him? This is, uh, if you've read this before and remember it, the, uh, the response to this is, is, is remarkable. But notice what these verses tell us. Here's your next blanks. Jehoshaphat's foundation for life and decision-making, knowing and obeying God's word. So he's made some really foolish choices already, but he is committed to knowing and obeying God's word. So let's look at Ahab's response. Pick up in verse 6 again so you get the flow of it. Look at this. Verse 6, but Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of him? And listen to Ahab's response. This is the most honest response by an evil liar in history. Look at this. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. For he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. Now we're going to watch the story unfold. But, but Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Jehoshaphat, he's, he's down with Micaiah now, right? So then the king of Israel called an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, Imlah's son. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on each on their throne, arrayed in their robes, and they were sitting at the threshing floor 
at the entrance to the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. Remember, those are the false prophets, 400 of them. And now kind of the chief false prophet, if you will. And Zedekiah, the son of Chenanah, made horns. He did a typical Hebrew prophet thing. He, he, he does an object lesson. Watch this. He made horns of iron for himself, and he said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall gore the Arameans until they are consumed. And all the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and succeed, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So notice, all of these false prophets who always tell Ahab exactly what he wants to hear are all saying, go for it, go up to war. Then the messenger went to summon Micaiah, spoke to him, and now notice what the messenger says to Micaiah, the true prophet. Behold, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king, so please let your word be like one of them and speak favorably. And look at this incredible response by Micaiah. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, whatever my God says, that I will speak. And when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go up to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And he said, go up and succeed for they will be given into your hand. Now this is really cool. Ahab is very unwise in the ways of the Lord, but he has been around the block a bunch of times. And now all of a sudden, for the first time, Micaiah says, yeah, do what you want. Notice Ahab's insight. Then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah says, okay, you're right, you're right. Never mind, here's the prophecy. Thus says the Lord, that was fake. All of your false prophets were lying and he says this, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. In other words, no more king. And the Lord said, they have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? You ready for Ahab's foundation? for his life and decision-making, write this in. This is really important to every one of us in this room. His own opinion, here's the foundation, his own opinion and the counsel of those who would tell him what he wanted to hear. Everybody got that? His foundation for life was his own opinion and surrounding himself with counsel that would tell him what he wanted to hear. So let me ask, what's the foundation for your life's decisions? Do you trust your own insights and listen to those who ignore and twist God's word? Or do you surround yourself with people who love you enough to tell you what you actually need to hear? Now at this point, Micaiah doubles down. We don't have time to read it, but his prophecy, now he says, here's the scoop. The Lord, Ahab, the Lord has declared disaster against you if you go against Ramoth-Gilead. And so at this point, Ahab should say, Oh, Micaiah, thank you. I knew those 400 idiots were lying to me. You, you just saved my life. That's what he should have said, but um, look what happens. These are the last words that Ahab will ever hear from God. Verse 27. And Micaiah said, If you indeed return, the Lord has not spoken by me. In other words, if I'm a true prophet and you go into battle, you're dying. If you come back alive from battle, I'm a false prophet. So, what an amazing interaction. Look at the contrast between these two kings. 
Jehoshaphat's foundation, knowing and obeying God's word. Ahab's foundation, his own opinion and surrounding himself with people who told him what he wanted to hear. Precept number three. Here we go. We're not even aware of most of the risks that surround us. I mean, I just, I just wonder, snapshot forward to today, I just wonder how many times God put an angel in a car driving slowly in front of me, and I'm going, I can't change, I can't get, what, what kind of idiot is this old lady, uh, right? And, and there's this angel, and, the, and who knows what God is saving me from then? We just don't have any clue what risks we're taking in life. So look at verse 28 with me. Verse 28. So the king of Israel, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth-Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. Got it? Ahab's saying, I'll disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your kingly robes. Um... Let's see. Now, you know I, I'm not rewriting Scripture, but I do this frequently. Here's what the second sentence of chapter 29 should say. Ready? It's up on the screen. And Jehoshaphat thought to himself, hmm, now why would Ahab dress up like a regular old soldier but have me dress up looking like a king? But he is so clueless it doesn't even cross his mind that Ahab looks like a regular old Joe, and here he is, the one king-looking guy out in front of the whole army. Um, and he nearly pays the ultimate price for this. <laughs> Look at the second verse, uh, excuse me, the second sentence in 29, as it happens. So the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now, the king of Aram, this cracks me up, the king of Aram had commanded the captains of the chariot, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. So it came about when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat that they said, It is the king of Israel. And they turned aside the fight against him. <laughs> Think about this. The entire Aramean army has one target, Ahab. And who's the only guy that looks like Ahab right now? Jehoshaphat. This is an incredible setup. Okay, so look at 31 again. Look, let's keep going. Okay, so notice Jehoshaphat cried out to the Lord. Notice his default was really easy, always. He said to help him, and God diverted them from him. And then it happened when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. So notice this. This tells us a lot about risk. Two key concepts. Here's what we learn about risk from Jehoshaphat in this story. Ready? Number one, because Jehoshaphat's life was driven by a commitment to know God's ways, the Lord protected him from his ignorance. Isn't God good? We don't have to be smart. We just have to follow him and have a heart for him and want to know his ways and listen to those that will tell us the hard things. He'll cover, isn't it great? He'll cover for our ignorance. He's amazing. And key concept number two, when a person's first priority in life is obedience to God, the Lord covers for their cluelessness. What a great God. So look how the passage ends. Yeah, <laughs> not asking for uh, personal testimonies, but I do hear that witness. Um, <laughs> verse 33, um, 
Here's how it ends. And a certain man, oh, the rest of you pious people, you just didn't say amen. The, the, the honest ones did. Um, and a certain man drew at a bow. At, at, I love this. There is actually, did you know there is actually a Hebrew word for random? So you got the picture? Jehoshaphat looks like the king. Ahab is among tens of thousands of regular old Joe soldier, soldiers, right? And so Ahab's got this all figured out, man. They're never going to get me, all right? Uh, so, so look at this. And a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint in the armor. Just happened to go right in the right place. So he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and take me out of the fight for I am severely wounded. And the battle raged that day and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariots in front of the Arameans until the evening and at sunset he died. Listen up, church. When you walk in disobedience, no matter how hard you try to manipulate your circumstances, your plans will fail. Listen to everybody in the room. If you're walking in disobedience, it doesn't matter how you've got everything set up, your plans will fail. A random arrow is going to find your chink in the armor. Nothing you can do about it. When we ignore God's word repeatedly, you know what? There comes a point. Think about how often. It's clear Ahab had heard from Micaiah enough times to hate him. Every one of those was the word of the Lord to save Ahab. And you know what happens when you uh, ignore God's word repeatedly? There comes a point where God allows you to ruin your life. So here's what we learn about risk from Ahab. Key concept number one, here it is. As painful as his counsel was, talking about Micaiah, Micaiah was God's grace to Ahab. Do you know sometimes the most gracious person in your life you hate and you think they're mean and judgmental, and they're actually God's grace to you? Key concept number two, the great risk in life, the great risk in life is to disobey God's word. So notice, the first three precepts have come from Jehoshaphat's young kingly life. The fourth comes from much later. He's now much more mature. Here's risk precept number four. Here's your blanks. When you walk in faith and obedience, get ready for God's call to big risk. Now think about this. As Jehoshaphat walked with God and grew in faith, you know what you would think? you'd think his risk would decrease, right? Because certainly God would give him the knowledge and the word and the prophets would come tell him how to stay out of danger. And many people believe that if they're faithful, he'll make things easy. But the fact is, you know what happens? God uses the victories that he has given us as preparation for the next great challenge. That's how it works. So here's a key concept in this next precept. Write it in. As Jehoshaphat grew in the Lord, God called him to take greater risk. So let's move to chapter 20, right? This you'll be familiar with, so we'll just look at a few verses. Now Jehoshaphat and Judah are in big trouble. Okay, they're back in Judah, and it's significantly later, and now they're surrounded. Look at this, verse 1. Then it came, now it came about, after, the sons of, after that the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. 
Now watch how great King Jehoshaphat responds. This is remarkable. And Jehoshaphat was afraid. Aren't you glad? That makes me feel so much better. He wasn't fearless. You know this no fear trash garbage? Doesn't happen. Fear is a normal, natural response to physical threat. That's how God made us. Fear doesn't go away, but the response to fear can be utterly transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at this amazing response. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord God and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Look at verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And are you not ruler of all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one stands against you. You know what most kings do when they have a threat like this? They go to the situation room, and they get everybody around them and say, okay, what are we going to do? He had been trained. This is really easy. God, you are incredible. I trust in you. Please bring your word. And notice what happens. Verse 12, he says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who come against you, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is great. Think about what we learn here. He was honest about where they stood. They were toast. He continued to say, but you are the great God. I have no wisdom. I don't have a clue. But I know who does. Lord, please respond. And look at how God responds. Verse 15. This is just amazing scripture. If you haven't been through this, go back and read the whole story over and over. It's just incredibly powerful. And he said... Listen, all Judah, this is now Jehaziel, the prophet. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of, the, uh, of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17, by the way, we have the option. Did you know that? We have the option. Jehoshaphat could have made it Jehoshaphat's battle. Oh, Dan, listen. How often have I fought battles that God never wanted me to fight. But look at this, verse 17. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves and stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. And now, just to make sure that they are completely dependent upon him alone, you know what God does? He, I think about four years ago, from a different perspective, we may have covered some of this uh, passage. Um, God gives them the worst battle plan in history. Uh, I think I even apologized to Josiah for this last time, too. They put the musicians in the front of the army. Is that the stupidest thing you've ever heard? That, that, look at this. This is amazing. Verse 20. I really am sorry, Pastor Josiah. Um, and and they arose the next morning and went out to the, the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. 
Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. And they went out before the army and they said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. So look at the reality of the situation. They are risking everything. Think about this. There's no contingency. There is no plan B. They have completely exposed themselves. They don't even have weapons in the front of the army. Look what God does for his people. Verse 22, and when they began singing and praising the Lord. By the way, that I have circled and underlined and in color. Dan, and when you begin singing and praising the Lord, look what he did. He set ambushes against the son of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. We don't have time to go through it, but it is amazing. Here they are, the, you know, stupid battle plan. Here come the musicians. They come to what's called the uh, ascent of Ziz, all right? And you know what's already happened? God confused the Arameans, the Meunites, and the Ammonites, and they all have killed each other, and everybody's dead in the enemy. And here's the choir coming up here saying, hey guys, we got it covered. You can send the soldiers home, all set. All we had to do was trust and obey and praise our God. What an amazing story. So here's key concept number two. As Jehoshaphat grew, here's your blank. It didn't teach him how to avoid risk. Isn't that interesting? Maturity for Jehoshaphat wasn't learning how to avoid risk. Rather, it taught him how to face risk with confidence. I don't know about you, but I need more of that. Now, why does God give those who he loves a high-risk calling? Because, listen, church, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And have you noticed how good he is at it? Have you looked around here? Have you seen how many lives the enemy is ruining in families, in neighborhoods, workplaces, schools? Have you seen how much damage he's doing in our community? You see, we haven't been put here to hang out till Jesus takes us home, church. In case you haven't noticed, we're at war with the enemy of this world. And God is looking for those who will take dangerous assignments while everybody else is on the run. So let's apply what we've learned. Application number one. Every human, whether they realize it or not, will risk everything. This is important. If you're not a note taker, you still ought to write this one in because this is true. Every human, whether they realize it or not, will risk everything, either on themselves or on God. Have you ever thought about this? Every human is taking, is making a, a risky decision about God. So let's start on the believer side. Christianity is the riskiest of all religions. Let me tell you what I mean. The entire belief system is based upon the astounding claims of Jesus Christ. He claimed that anyone who had seen him had seen God. He allowed people to worship him. He forgave sin. Only God can do that. He said that he was there when Lucifer fell from heaven. And you know what he said? He said he's going to return to this earth in power and great glory and majesty. And he's going to melt the universe with a fervent heat. And he's going to create an entirely new heaven and new earth. And he's going to reign as king forever. Do you realize how outrageous those claims are? A man came to earth and died and says that. It's amazing when you think about it. Um, 
now don't get me wrong, there are many historical, logical, and philosophical reasons to believe that all of these statements are absolutely true. But never forget how completely unique the claims of Jesus Christ are. Totally unique in all of history. So here's the key. Either the claims of Jesus Christ are true, or they're not. Either he's exactly who he said he is, or he's the perpetrator of the greatest hoax in human history. Notice the risk. Christ followers, we are risking everything on the claims of Jesus Christ. But there's a flip side. The flip side is, if the claims of Jesus are true, then those who don't proclaim him as Savior and Lord are really risking everything. You see, there's no, absolute, there's, there's no way to get around this. Jesus forces a universal dichotomy. Humans must risk everything, either on the belief that the one true God exists or that he doesn't. But don't miss this. Every human being is risking everything on this decision. Here's a universal truth. Here's your blank. No one has the option of risking less than everything. Keep that up there. Let that soak in. Do you know no human has the option of risking less than everything? Because either the claims of Jesus Christ are true or they are not. You are risking everything on him or you are risking everything against him, but everyone is risking everything. Application number two. If you're going to risk everything on God, by the way, this is not schizophrenia, if you're going to risk everything on God, then risk, listen church, then risk everything on God. See, what happens, let me, let me start this back to our baby steps when many of us here became believers. What happens when a person first comes to Christ? Here are the kinds of things that they say. Here's what you often hear at the altar. Lord, I'm giving you my all. Take my life. I surrender everything to you, right? Didn't you start that way? Lord, I, I, I give you everything I have. It's, no, it's nothing. <laughs> it's, it's way less than you deserve, but I give everything that I have. You see, a true and honest response to Jesus says, Lord, take all of me. This is how belief in Jesus begins. But with many Christians, soon after this, a gradual drift begins. They begin ever so subtly to compromise and to take control of their life back, to trust themselves more than they trust his word. And then they tell themselves, the slide's okay because after all, they still go to church, and it's a good church, and it's a Bible-preaching, believing church. And then they begin to avoid accountability, and they stop asking themselves why they're no longer completely surrendered to God. And guess what? Their Christian life becomes one of marginal commitment. That is American Christianity, George Barna has told us for three decades through his research. But listen to N.T. Wright, how he blows away this concept of Christianity. Look at it. Read it with me. Now can you, you, know, you, now can you live, excuse me, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? Isn't that cool? And notice the capital letters here. The hurricane has become human. That fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst. Christianity is either that or it means nothing. 
It's either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, it's nonsense, it's deceitful play-acting. Most of us, look at this, most of us, unable to come to grips with this either-or truth, condemn ourselves to live, I love how he puts this, to live in the shallow world in between. But Jesus Christ isn't just a nice man or a wonderful teacher. He's the very glory of God, the ultimate reality, and that means that everything in your life has to revolve around him. Folks, if you're going to give him everything, then give him everything. Right before the crucifixion, you'll remember it. Jesus is before Pilate. And you know what? Pilate was questioning him. And Jesus ignores him entirely during this questioning. He wouldn't answer, so Pilate says this. Look at the text. It's up, it's up on the screen. You do not speak to me, Pilate to Jesus. You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. Here's what Jesus was saying to Pilate. And he's saying to everyone, either crown me or kill me. That's what he's saying to Pilate. You either declare me king or you kill me, Pilate. I have nothing else to say to you. Crown me or kill me. Either accept my claim to lordship or reject me. But listen, I won't let you waver in the middle. The words of Jesus. You can either have give me everything and make me Lord, or you can hate me, run away from me, and be angry with me. Now, by the way, a lot of Americans have heard about enough, Je enough about Jesus that they're afraid to say, well, I hate him, I'm, I reject him, I'm, I'm leaving him. They live in that middle that N.T. Wright talks about. But notice this. At least those responses are honest and have integrity because you've faced the fact that I'm not just a nice guy who came to tell people to be nice. You can either worship and obey me or you can reject me. But listen, I won't let anybody just like me. <laughs> I am either the ultimate burning reality in all of the universe and you find the prophets on their faces when they see him or I'm the worst hoax in history. Choose, but choose honestly. And whichever way you go, make sure you realize you're risking everything. Listen to this incredibly insightful illustration by Bible teacher. Her name's Barbara Boyd. I don't know her, but this is an amazing insight. It's on the screen. Look at this. If I arrive at your home and you say to me, come in, Barbara, but stay out Boyd, that's impossible for me. I don't have a Barbara part or a Boyd part. I'm all Barbara and all Boyd. So you can either get all of me or you get none of me. And in the very same way, you can't say, come in Savior, but stay out Lord. You can't say, come in Comforter, but stay out King. It's all of him or nothing. Now before we close, I want to make a final point. Do not misunderstand this message. If you take this, Mark Twain had a recurrent nightmare that he wrote about often. It's a gigantic heavy Bible. He's supine, and it's on his chest, and it's crushing him, and it can't get him off. If all you heard this morning is a crushing Bible of God saying, you be good, you be good, 
you risk everything and you be good, then you've completely misunderstood the message. None of us can do this on our own. No matter how authentic and complete our surrender is in our own strength, we can't do what we're saying we'll do. So here is the key. Our part is surrender. His part is supplying the power and the purity. Our part is consecration. His part is sanctification. Our part, our part is giving up control. His part is to perform the miracle of transformation. So here's the big question. Are you willing to do your part? Are you ready to be all in, to take the plunge, to risk everything? Because if you are, then he will perform the miracle of filling you with the power and purity of his Holy Spirit. So here's the bottom line. If you want Jesus, you're right. It's high risk. You have to give him everything. Nothing held back. You have to leave the diving board. No half measures. You have to go all in. So this morning's call is about risk. If you've really given yourself to God, then get in the saddle. Attack the enemy. And don't do it by stealth. Step out boldly because as long as you walk in God's ways, listen to me, as long as you walk in God's ways, you're immortal until he's done with you. Have you ever thought of that? As long as we walk in his ways, we're immortal until he's done with us. What an incredible place of safety in the midst of an unbelievably high-risk world. In this morning's response, we're going to um, get very practical. We're not going to just have a rah-rah session where we say, okay, I'm all in, and then we leave without making some really specific commitments. So um, look on the back of your handout. If you haven't had a handout, please get a handout now. Uh, help people pass around because uh, the second page, is. You're, we're going to spend a, a few minutes as the, uh, not yet, but in a few minutes the, the, they'll come up and we're going we're to work on this. But um, uh, we're going to look at some of the areas where God may be wanting you to make bold changes. Uh, I'm going to walk us through these really quickly, right? And then we're going to have a few minutes to write them down. Um, so where is God calling me to take big risks? Notice there's blanks there because some of these, for some of us, a whole bunch of these categories will be relevant. For others, fewer and so forth. But uh, it's free form there uh, for you to respond to in a minute. Um, let's start at the top. After today's message, how could it not be this? Give my heart. Am I going to take the risk? Am I going to take the plunge? Give my heart to Christ. Listen, you're going to risk everything one way or the other. So why not risk everything on the God who loved you so much that he took all of your sin and suffering upon himself? Why risk everything on things that will, in the end, absolutely fail you? Following Christ is the riskiest thing a human can ever do except to not follow Christ. Okay, go public. Do you realize everybody comes, everybody's coming out for everything nowadays except the average Christian? I mean, coming out isn't even a big deal anymore. It's no more news unless you're a Christian that comes out for Jesus. So I want to deal with two things first. Now, remember I told you if you picked up the card, uh, uh, if you picked up the card on the floor, uh, that you already failed a psychological test. More on that maybe in a future message. Um, anyway, so everybody now get the card. Um, this is going to test your uh, muscle tone and flexibility for some of you. Uh, other people might have to crawl on the floor to get yours. Um, but make sure everybody has one of these, okay? Everyone, and I just want to run through this quickly. Um, 
I want to run through this quickly, but th this is a key as you're, as you're looking at that. Um, by the way, there are pencils on the ends of the rows, I think I told you. Okay, so here's the key. Getting baptized is an incredibly important step for believers. Now, for some people, this is really easy. But for others, getting baptized publicly is terrifying. I think there's generally two reasons why. The first is, I don't think I'm good enough. <laughs> so listen, you don't have to have it all together to be baptized. In fact, if you had to have it all be better, better uh, together to be baptized, nobody in this room would be baptized. It's not a declaration that you're perfect. You know what it is? It's a declaration that you've given your life to Jesus, that he's your Lord, and that you're willing to be identified as one of his followers. That's it, Christian baptism. The second fear that some people have is that you're afraid to get up in front of people and maybe you're even embarrassed. To those with this fear, let me just say this. Jesus would say it nicer, but I don't have time. Jesus, Jesus doesn't have silent followers. Listen, church. Jesus doesn't have silent followers. You can't be a stealth Christian. To be a true Christian, you have to believe and confess. You have to have a, a testimony that openly says, Jesus is my Lord. If you've given your life to Christ, then you have to go public. But here's the great thing about baptism. You know what? Some people see baptism as a threat. It's actually a gift from God. You know why? When you're baptized in the church, if, if you get baptized here, you're surrounded by people who are pulling for you. You know, when you come out of the water, there's going to be cheers and a standing ovation. I mean, it, it's just, it's an incredible place. Going public begins with baptism because you're surrounded by people who love you. If you can't acknowledge Jesus with your church family, then you'll never be able to identify with him out there. If you can't start here and say, he's mine and I'm his, then you'll never be able to do it out there. So everyone look at your card. If you haven't ha been baptized since you've believed in Jesus, it's time to go public. So notice really quickly, you can ch there's several options. There's for fourth grade and up. There's options for ch if you, your ch children may want to be. Uh, and then put your name and so forth. And, and uh, just one thing that's real important. Uh, at the end, Pastor Kurt is going to be over in the prayer room for those who either have questions or want to be baptized. Just, it'll be super quick, just a few minutes, but to, to contact and, and, and make connection. We're not, we're, not, we're not prepared to baptize you today. Um, it's, it's for the future. Um, but some people have to leave immediately at the end of the service. If you do, please, there are baskets at, on both tall tables in the back. Please at least put those in, and a pastor will contact you. Now, everybody else, by the way, who says, oh, yeah, I'm sitting pretty on that one because I've been baptized. Um, uh, there's no getting off going public. So in this section, as when we sing, and Pastor Josiah and the team, you can come on up. Um, in a moment, write down specific ways where I'm going public with my faith and write down names that you need to have spiritual conversations with or seek spiritual conversations with. Okay, take... This risky perspective. See, follow with me in the notes. You're going to come back and look through these, and you won't, you'll have just a few minutes to start today, but you'll work on these later. Trust God so completely that I begin to live as if every circumstance in life is primarily an opportunity to understand who God wants me to become. What if your problems all of a sudden were all an opportunity for God to make you more like Jesus? I'll just say, I, I'm, I, took, I took the upper class courses in Winers 
I started with Winer 101, and then I went to Winning Advanced, right? Um, what if we looked at every problem and said, God, help me to be more like Jesus because I have this issue? Next, some of, this, some of you, this is going to give you an absolute stroke. Stop consuming my life with social media and be willing to take the risk that I'll be out of the loop and maybe even unliked or shunned or un, unfriended. Oh, no, what are you going to do? Um, my goodness, do you realize, uh, by the way, posting a Bible verse is not deep Bible study and commitment to God's Word. Some of us, look at the numbers, hours and hours a day. <laughs> Aren't you glad you have a real pastor? You're not that interesting. Stop posting so much, okay? So, next, okay, God, give God complete control in my relationships, Listen to this. Ask the Spirit to make it so you can say, I will allow Jesus to be enough for me, period. Do you realize the freedom that creates in relationships? You don't need a relationship anymore. You've got Jesus, and then everything comes out of that. Make a specific commitment to service in the kingdom. Next week, Pastor Kurt, I believe, is going to preach more on the specifics of that. But at least right down today, Jesus, I'm in. Give me the opportunities and I will serve. Give God complete control of my sexuality and establish specific accountability. You know what? I can't have a page like this without this one. So listen, everyone. I'll pursue purity by allowing his Holy Spirit to cleanse me from lust, pornography, or adultery, physical or mental. And I'll establish at least one intentional relationship with someone who will hold me accountable and with whom I'll be completely honest. Let me just tell you how this would look if your issue is the sin of pornography. I'm going to take the risk and get help. I'm going to fess up to my sin because I know that this bondage is going to ruin my future. It's going to ruin my life. It's going to ruin my family. And it may, it'll ruin my future family if I don't have one yet. Just write down, I need help. I'll find my identity in Christ alone. Stop worrying about the, the world's values. Notice the things I listed there. Stop worrying about how you look, all those kinds of things. Give God complete control in my finances, beginning with tining, uh, tithing 10% in my income. Some of you, this is a really big deal. And then finally, God's been working on some of us here for a call into ministry, maybe into missions. If God's calling you, be all in. So we're going to take a few minutes. I want you to work on that page while Josiah and the team sing with us, and then we'll pray and finish.